Amoti lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, amotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Ore pri hagafen. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen.
Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 23. Our portion this week is in the Hebrews entitled, The Life of Sarah, Hayes Sarah. And it, the, um, it speaks to the subject of Sarah, the wife of Abraham, and when she passes. The first words of our portion go, Now Sarah lived 127 years, and these are the years of the life of Sarah, the life of Sarah, Hayes Sarah. Actually, in the Hebrew, it says that this was, and that she lived 100 years, and 20 years, and 7 years. There is a very popular eulogy. Uh, amongst Torah teachers that we give to Sarah, the wife of Abraham, we say the following. We say at the age of 100 years that she had the beauty of a 20-year-old and the sin of a 7-year-old. And it's to speak to her spiritual qualities as being the wife uh, of Abraham, the mother of Isaac, the promised son. And uh, so this portion is addressing the fact that she has just died and that Abraham is getting ready to bury her and render honors to her. Now, before I go any further in this portion, I need to address, um, because we don't really hear in the scripture, how did she die? And it's kind of logical. I mean, she was a very old lady, you know, when she died. We estimate that she was um, uh, somewhere in the age of over 100 years old when she passed, and that would be normal and logical. But if you recall, Abraham, her husband, went on to live many more years after this. And we know that the God miraculously worked in the lives of Abraham and Sarah so that they could uh, give birth to Isaac. And so it's, it's somewhat logical to say, well, what, what uh, was the reason for her death? Because the scripture doesn't say so. So it opens it up to speculation. Now, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this speculation, but, but studying the Torah, you need to be aware of some of these stories that fit into this because it really reverts back to something in the previous portion that is part of the answer for it. And last week when I was teaching you that portion, I did not cover the subject of Genesis 22. Uh, we need to cover it just very briefly because it's a very important part of the Torah. Plus, 
it gives us some of the insight into why the Torah teachers talk about what brought about Sarah's death. So if you'll allow me, let me go back to a portion of last week's portion to kind of set the stage for this week's portion. Chapter 22 has a very, very specific name in the Hebrew for this chapter. It's called the Akita. It, which means the binding. It, it's talking about the story of the binding of Isaac, that Abraham was instructed to take Isaac to go sacrifice him up on Mount Moriah. So let's go back there very briefly. Let me read to you. This is a very important and traditional passage of the Torah. It's taught multiple times throughout the year, especially at the high holidays, uh, but also in our Torah cycle. So let me touch on that so we can set the stage for this portion. In chapter 22, it reads, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So right off the bat, I want you to take note of something. The relationship that God has with Abraham. God can come to Abraham, call his name out, and Abraham immediately responds. And Abraham used to be able to call God's name out, and God would immediately respond to him. Wouldn't you like to have a relationship with God like that? Where you could call on the name of the Lord, and instantly the Lord would respond to you. He'd be attentive to whatever your need is, and so forth. You can have such a relationship. It is possible to have such a relationship. Abraham had it. Let me tell you what is one of the keys, though. When God calls you, you have to answer. Don't expect God to answer when you call him if you're not willing to answer him when he calls you. If your heart is not willing to do that which the Lord wants you to do, and by the way, you demonstrate that every day as to whether or not you're willing to keep his commandments. If you're not willing to keep his commandments, then why should God listen to you when you call upon him? There is a direct relationship in it. By the way, the same relationship that you use to judge relationships amongst your friends. If you are inviting friends over to your place and they come, but they never invite you over to their place, what kind of relationship do you have? It's not much of a relationship. It's what we, uh, in the electronics world, we used to call a diode relationship. A diode is an electronic device where current only flows one way. <laughs> it doesn't flow the other way. So a diode relationship is where, where you do all kinds of good things for the other person, but the, person, the other person doesn't reciprocate, doesn't do anything for you. Well, for you to have a great relationship with God, where God will respond to you, you have to be responsive to God. It's a reciprocal relationship. And right here, we hear this is the relationship that Abraham has. Now, God calls on him, and he says, Abraham, there's something I want you to do. So Abraham responds immediately, and Abraham is now going to do what the Lord is asking. And consider this, what he's being asked. Isaac is this promised son. He had waited 25 years for this promise to be fulfilled. From the time he got the promise at 75 until, ni until 99 and 100 when he had Isaac, he waited 25 years for this promise. Now, all of a sudden, he has the promise, and then God says, give him back. What it, uh, you know, and by the way, there's no evidence here that Abraham consulted with Sarah about this. Can you imagine that conversation? Abraham... 
goes to Sarah and says, hey, I had a conversation with God this morning. Oh, wonderful. What did the Lord say? Well, he told me I'm supposed to load up Isaac, you know, our son, you know, that you gave miracle birth to, you know, the promised one. He said, I'm supposed to give him back to the Lord. How do you think Sarah would have handled that? Are you sure you were really talking to the Lord, Abraham? Are you sure the Lord really said that? <laughs> you know, there, there, that would have been a very difficult conversation. And what we have here is we don't have any hint that Abraham is having a discussion with Sarah about this. One of the theories about the death of Sarah is that someone knew what Abraham and Isaac were getting ready to do. And after they left, spoke to Sarah and told her what was supposed to be happening. And that the shock of it and the inability to do anything about it, they think may have been the cause of her sudden death. So just kind of put that in your pipe and smoke that for a little bit. We don't know that for sure, but boy, that sure is plausible. You know, that certainly would have been her reaction. And it's, uh, it, put yourself in the shoes of Abraham. He, he obeys the Lord. He doesn't lose his son, but he comes back to the loss of his wife. Uh, that kind of puts a different kind of weight into the relationship that God has with Abraham and how Abraham deals with all of this, even Isaac, how he deals with this as well. But let me go on a little bit further to give you further, just to touch on Genesis 22 before we continue on. Um, so um, verse 3, uh, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the bird offering, and arose and went to the place where God had told him. There's actually a place in Jerusalem called the Promenade, which is on the southern side of the old city, where you can actually stand, and where we believe this is actually the place where these verses happened. There's a precipice there where you can see Mount Moriah, you can see the Temple Mount, you can see the old city of Jerusalem, and it is walking distance over to the area where he would have gone. And that, when I take tours to Israel, we come to that place and then we read these words so that you get a sense of this is the place where those words were completed. This is the place where they saw where Abraham will now uh, take Isaac with the wood, uh, leave the donkeys, leave the servants there, and he will proceed on to Mount Moriah for the sacrifice. Uh, verse 5, and Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship and return to you. Notice he is committing and saying, we, I and Isaac, will return. Now, Abraham knows he's supposed to be going up there, and he's supposed to make Isaac into a burnt offering. That would mean the death of him. How is it that he believes that Isaac is going to be returning? And here is the, the faith of Abraham. This is believing in the promises of God. God promised Abraham that through this son, his descendants would be like the stars of the heaven, like the, the sand of the sea, that there would be a prolific number of descendants that would come through this son. Now, we believe at this particular time, Isaac was not a babe and not a young boy. We believe he was a man. He was able to carry the firewood on this journey. 
you know, that they're going to log up there. And so he, but he's not married and he has not had any children yet. And so uh, he's, he's a grown man, but he hasn't reproduced, you know, to fulfill the promise. Now, Abraham believes this promise. And God has said, take that young man, go, go slay him and make him a burnt offering to me. Give him back to me. Abraham is still confident that God is fulfill, will fulfill his promise and through that son will be many descendants. So it doesn't make any difference to him that he's going to go slay him and make him a burnt offering. God will have to raise him back up again to fulfill his good word. Thus, you hear his testimony of faith. Stay here to the servants. I and the lad will return. Um, it's a great promise of resurrection. It's a great promise of hope uh, that we have. And Abraham is demonstrating it for us right there. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes, saw the place from a distance, and said, we will return to you here. Verse 6, and Abraham took the wood of the bird offering, laid it on Isaac his son, and he took his hand, the fire, and the knife, so the two of them walked on together. Please note this last phrase, so the two of them walked on together. If you drop down to verse 8, the last phrase of that is the same words. Verse 8, so the two of them walked on together, just like it says in verse 6. Any time that in the Torah you see an expression that repeats itself, all right? You see like justice, justice, you should pursue. In other words, the word for justice is given twice. In this phrase, it's given twice. This is not redundant. There are no redundant expressions in the Torah. Every word, every part of the Torah is highly significant. And it doesn't mean the same thing when you see it repeated. It is actually an indicator, as a, as a student of Torah, as a teacher of Torah, that something significant is taking place. Find out why the second phrase is being given. There is a giant reason there. And that's what is, it, this is like neon flashing lights to a Torah teacher. There's something very significant in these words. So let us look at those words. Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, and he took his hand, fire, so the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Again, the relationship. He calls out. He responds. And he said, Behold, the fire, the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. This phrase, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, is a profound and incredible promise that has been given to all of us. And the whole story of the Messiah Messiah Yeshua coming, offering himself like a lamb to the sacrifice. Um, and that, that this is God himself offering himself as the lamb according to the promise that our father Abraham has given. Abraham has promised us that God will provide the lamb for himself. That's the reason why he's called the lamb of God. He's not a lamb brought by a man. He's not a sacrifice brought by a man. And those that might advocate, well, Yeshua of Nazareth, he was really a man. 
you've missed the whole point. You're not listening to what Abraham promised. Abraham promised that God himself would present the lamb. And Yeshua comes and presents himself. Therefore, he was God himself presenting the lamb himself for that sacrifice. By the way, <coughs> the place that Abraham's going to take Isaac to, guess where Yeshua was crucified? In the same place. Just put that in your pipe and smoke that a little bit and think on that for a little bit. And you'll realize just how profound the sacrifice of the Messiah, the work of redemption, was according to these words. That's the reason why I wanted to touch on uh, Genesis 22 before we continued on. Last week I wasn't able to cover this. This is, for us as messianics, is extremely important. Now, what follows, you know this, what follows here is Abraham does take Isaac. And when it says the second phrase, so the two of them walked on together, we believe that Isaac now understood what was supposed to happen. We believe Isaac suddenly knew it was he who was going to be sacrificed. So he was willing to walk on. Here's Abraham willing to obey the commandment of the Lord. Here's Isaac willing to agree with his father to obey the commandment of the Lord. Uh, this is extremely powerful in terms of demonstrating faith. And we see the same picture of Messiah Yeshua, the Son of God, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will, uh, that he would offer himself up. This is the story of Abraham and Isaac going to the binding uh, here for it. It's prophetically being played out for us. So he takes him up. He binds him. He prepares um, the altar. The wood is there. He's going to slay him. Then he's going to light the altar, and uh, so it will be a burnt offering. But as you know... As he went to strike him with the knife, to slay him suddenly and quickly, uh, instead, this is what happened. Verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So it turns out that this was a test. This was to prove the faith of Abraham. And Abraham passed the test. Now, I want you to also take note that in verse 1, when God called out Abraham's name to tell him to go and do this, this thing, it just simply said, Abraham, and he said, here I am. But when it came to stopping the sacrifice, in verse 11, it said, Abraham, Abraham, twice his name was spoken. There is a couple of other instances in Scripture where we see this happen, where God will suddenly call out either to Moses or will call out to Abraham or to Isaac, um, or excuse me, Jacob, we see these instances where God actually speaks, calls the name out um, to it. And there are these times when God will repeat the name. Now, why is God repeating the name? What is the emphasis here? What, what is really being expressed? Why call Abraham's name out twice? If God is able to communicate with Abraham just fine by calling his name once and Abraham responds to him, why didn't he just say, Abraham, and the Lord, and Abraham says, here I am again, because that, that relationship has already been established. Why call his name out twice? Well, these are evidences. 
that continue to support the overarching teaching of how God manifests himself in the scripture. God never presents himself in a purely singular role. He always presents him in a plural role. Now, in this particular case, what did Abraham hear? Two voices. Two voices. I submit to you that one part of God said to Abraham, go, take your son. Two parts of God said, don't slay him. Two parts said, don't do it. This is like the Messiah when he was on the cross and he was being slayed. He cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He called out to the other two. And when we hear God speaking with God, we, we see the plurality. Last week when I was covering Sodom and Gomorrah, I pointed out to you that here's God talking to God and God answers. Shall we not tell Abraham what we are about to do? Um, and then God answers. You know, God. And so we see again this plural expression of how God is uh, there speaking to Abraham at this point. Um, Abraham stops. He does not slay Isaac. Um, and um, we, as we read down further, uh, part of the discussion with, with him, go, where God speaks to Abraham and says this, uh, then the, verse 15, then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So here's the principle. Remember last week I told you about hospitality leads to intercession? This week the portion is obedience brings blessing. So we understand that the reason we obey the Lord is because it produces blessing. Because you have obeyed me, I will bless you exceedingly great. Uh, the opposite of that is, of course, if we disobey the Lord, we receive the curses. But if we obey the Lord, we receive the blessing. These are the principles. Now, before I leave Abraham here, there's one more powerful principle I want to share with you. And I feel obligated to do it just to kind of summarize what we've learned. The combination, the combination of Abraham believing the promise of God, that his faith was counted for righteousness, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, will not the judge of the world world not judge righteously, he, the, the Abraham questioned. And then finally, this final part where we have Isaac being taken to be sacrificed and he is to be saved as a result we now have the following principle. And if you have a pen and a piece of paper, you're going to want to write this down. This is the master teaching of Abraham. Faith is counted for righteousness. Righteousness has kissed justice. Justice demands sacrifice. And with sacrifice, you receive salvation. 
This is the teaching of Abraham. This is what Paul was trying to explain to us in the book of Romans, justification by faith. This is why he summarized that whole teaching in the book of Ephesians. He said, for by grace are you saved through faith. It begins with faith, the grace of God and faith, and it leads all the way to salvation. But what is between faith and salvation? Well, many works of God not the least of which is righteousness, justice, and sacrifice. We know we're saved by the sacrifice of Yeshua. We know that God is the true judge and has accepted him as a substitute for his justice. And we know that all of this is righteousness. It's to restore righteousness. So faith leads all the way to salvation. Abraham and his um, doing all of these things in these previous portions, it teaches us these basic principles. Uh, I wanted to make sure that we covered that because in here it, it sets the stage with what God is building in his relationship with Abraham and with the fathers. These are the profound elements uh, of, of, of our faith today. I said to you earlier when we began teaching about Abraham that it's crucial in your spiritual maturity to see Abraham as your father, that you are part of his family, you're one of his descendants, that you are part of that, that uh, for you to grasp what God established in his relationship with Abraham, whom he called the friend of God, so that we can have such a relationship to walk before the Lord just as Abraham walked before the Lord. Now, one other aspect that I want to make sure we mention there was a sacrifice that was offered that day. There was a ram whose head had been caught in a thicket of thorns. And he was slain and he was sacrificed and offered up on the altar to the Lord. And just like that's the place where Abraham took Isaac and that's the place where Yeshua was taken to and he was crucified, we know that Yeshua, when he was brought... He was a male, he was like a ram, and his head, too, was caught in thorns when he was offered up. He was the acceptable sacrifice. He was the sacrifice prophesied to be. And when God says, um, verse 18, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice, Paul emphatically teaches us that in verse 18, the word for seed is a direct reference to the Messiah. That in the seed of the Messiah, the descendant of Abraham, all the families of the earth are in fact blessed uh, from it. And part of that blessing is salvation, eternal life, forgiveness of sin, the full redemption that God offers to all of mankind. All right, so I wanted to make sure that we just had all of those very important portions and fundamental teachings intact as we continue on in our portion. As I mentioned to you before, now our portion is about the death of Sarah and of course the way um, Hebrews observe uh, a person's life, they talk about the life of the person at their funeral, at, their, at the proceedings for them to memorialize them. They speak of the life. 
Hebrews don't, for the most part, celebrate birthdays. They wait until the person passes. Uh, part of the logic is that when a child is born, you don't know what that child will turn out to be. You don't know how long that child will live. You don't know what that child will do, how they'll be raised up, whether they'll become adults or not. You have nothing to know about what their life will be. But at the conclusion of a person's life, you have it all laid out before you. It's like a book uh, of it. And God refer uses the term like the book uh, to speak to the life of a person, the events. A story has been told about who this person is. And so Abraham obviously wants to memorialize the life of Sarah, wants to find a proper place for her to be laid to rest. And our story now goes into how today what's called Machpala, which is in Hebron, which is the burial place of the fathers. In that place today, Abraham and Sarah are buried. Isaac uh, is buried there with Rebekah. And Jacob is buried there with um, Leah. The three major patriarchs and their wives are buried at that place. Interestingly enough, the Muslims all lay claim to it. Uh, they lay claim to Abraham. Uh, when in fact they're uh, really worshiping uh, Hebrews and uh, the Hebrew God. But of course they call it Allah and they've tried to, if you will, kidnap that story to make it their own story. And that's part of the disputing between the Muslims and uh, the Jews. They all lay claim to the same patriarchs uh, and, um, and that particular place. This is the story of how Abraham will secure the ground where uh, Sarah is going to be buried, the place that we call Machpala there in Hebron uh, today. So it goes, um, verse 2, And Sarah died in Kirath Arba, which is called Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abram went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham rose from his dead and spoke to the sons of Heth, saying, and these are, area, these are people that are living in the, in the area. And there's a particular man who owns a particular area there, and he wants to negotiate and purchase it. So there's an assembly of all the leaders of all the different families and so forth, and Abraham goes and approaches there at this. Verse 4, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham and saying to him, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of your graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. So they're all offering, hey, you can take my gravesite. And he doesn't want their gravesites. He wants to purchase a particular place that will be his burial place. It will be the burial place of the patriarchs. So, verse 7, so Abraham arose and bowed to the people of the land and the sons of Heth, and he spoke with him, saying, if it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and approach Ephraim, the son of Zohar, for me. Now, Ephraim, son of Zohar, is sitting in the assembly. So, he's indirectly speaking to him. This is like speaking in the third person. He's talking to a group of people and he says, if you're willing to allow me to bury my dead, would you speak with the person who's already there? You ever been in a conversation where somebody's talking about you, but they're talking to somebody else and you, they know you're sitting right there? Okay. It's a kind of an indirect way to, to bring up a subject 
without directly speaking to him with, uh, to avoid the possibility of offending them? Because you see, if it's brought up indirect, he can easily say no and nobody's been offended. He, easily. But he's aware of the information and it gives Ephraim, the son of Zohar, an opportunity to consider the proposal because he hasn't been spoken to directly yet. So Abraham uses this tactic, which, by the way, is very diplomatic to do this. And it was very wise on his part. He spoke with them, saying, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of the sight, hear me and approach Ephraim the son of Zohar for me, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns, which is in the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. So he's saying, the land I want to buy is this field with this cave that Ephraim of Zohar owns. Verse 10, now Ephraim was sitting among the sons of Heth, and Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even of all who went in at the gate of his city, saying, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it in the presence of the sons of my people. I give it to you to bury your dead. Very gracious on his part. Very gracious. But in the ancients... Just because you gave something for a person, it, it, it primarily didn't mean you gave them ownership. It, you gave it to them so they could use it. And Abraham knows this. If I accept Ephraim's proposal, he will give it to me. Well, at some time in the future, he may come back and say, well, I want to take it back. And that's not what he wants. He wants to permanently own it. So he is understanding the offer. It sounds very gracious, but he understands the offer that Ephraim is uh, offering to him. And so he responds to his offering and he says this, verse 12, And Abraham bowed before the people of the land, and he spoke to Ephraim in the hearing of the people. Now he's speaking directly to him. Because Ephraim has responded in a positive way to his proposal. If you will only please listen to me, I will give the price of the field, accept it from him, me that I may bury my dead there. I want to pay for it so that I truly own it. Will you sell it to me is essentially what he's saying. Verse 14, then Ephraim answered Abraham, saying to him, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? So bury your dead. Very shrewd, diplomatic way. Oh, if you want to buy it, it's 400 shekels of silver. That's the diplomatic way of, so everybody appears to be gracious. I, I was really giving it to him. I mean, I mean, if you want to trade money, okay, but 400 shekels, what is that to us? That's pocket change. That means nothing uh, to us. I'll go ahead and take it. That's essentially the negotiation that took place here. It's a fascinating piece of text we have in the scripture. Um, if you were fabricating... Let's say that, uh, let's listen to some of the, criticals, the critics of the Bible. You know, these are archaic stories, they're all made up and so forth. Nobody in their right mind, if they were trying to build a false text, 
to try to deceive people and tell about some fantasy God and some fantasy story around God would go to this kind of detail to explain real human interaction between two humans according to the ancient customs. That they wouldn't have gone through the explicit detail of the negotiations. And furthermore, why does the text do this? Why does the Bible give us this much detail about this transaction? The reason is, is because the Bible wants to make sure that for every future generation, that Abraham really did buy this, and he owns it. And the descendants of Abraham own that piece of ground. So guess what is in dispute today? Who owns that piece of ground? Three times in the Bible, we hear where the Bible explicitly describes the patriarchs and those purchasing ground in the Holy Land. And it goes into great detail to explain it. Three places. One, here Abraham, Machpelah. Number two, Jacob, buying at Shechem, the burial place for Joseph. Three, David, Purchasing the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, which is where the temple in Jerusalem stood. Guess those three pieces of property, those are the three pieces of property today being disputed by the Palestinians that they own them. And the biblical record gives us explicit detail telling us, no, the ancient record says these were properly purchased from those who owned them before and they now belong to Abraham and his descendants. Now, interestingly enough, the Palestinians, while they claim Abraham as being their patriarch, they actually go from Abraham to Ishmael, not Abraham to Isaac. They claim the lineage of Abraham to Ishmael. But as the Bible says, that's not who got the blessing. It is Isaac who was the promised son. He was the one who got the blessing of Abraham. And that's the lineage of the chosen people. So the Palestinians... And the Arabs, they dispute the rest of the Bible, specifically when it cites these three specific places in what, in what we call the Holy Land today, and dispute them as ownership. The irony of the world today is we know this is the history of the land. We know this is the ancient history, and yet nations of the world dismiss history that they have held to for millennia in this so-called modern dispute uh, between Israel and its neighbors, particularly the Palestinian people, trying to lay claim to the Palestinians are entitled to some of the land. Palestinians, according to the biblical record, were entitled to nothing. This land belongs to Abraham and to his descendants. This is the promised land. It was won by conquest, and in particular places, it was actually purchased. There's a price given. The negotiations are given to us, and the exchange. We have the evidence of the contractual sale uh, taking place. This is one of those instances where that has taken place. If I could, just for a moment, step back into history and tell you briefly about the negotiation. This is when uh, President Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton was the president, and he had Ehud Barak, who was the Prime Minister of Israel at the time, and Yasser Arafat, and they, he had taken them all to Camp David. 
and they were trying to strike the deal for the Middle East peace accord, the thing that uh, Clinton had started with the famous handshake on the White House lawn uh, back in 1993. And so it was during his presidential term, he's trying to nail this agreement down. And they pretty much have negotiated all of the elements. There's only one last element still to be negotiated. And it's going to take the president himself, Bill Clinton, with Ehud Barak, with the chief Palestinian negotiator to hammer out the agreement on this last part. The last part is the Temple Mount. This has actually happened. This is historically true. So the president says to the Palestinian negotiator, uh, why aren't you willing to share at least part of the Temple Mount? It is the original site of where the Jews used to have the temple. You're, you're being respected for your faith, for where you claim Muhammad, you know, ascended to heaven. Why can't you allow the Jews to have a piece of it where they believe that their temple was at? We make it fair as fair, we all share. At which point the Palestinian negotiator said, Mr. President, I can't believe that you're believing in these Jewish myths. And this Bible story about, uh, you know, this is all a Jewish book, and, and it's not true. It's all fantasy. It's all made-up stories and so forth. There never was a Jewish temple there. At which point, President Bill Clinton got up, went over to the bookshelf there where they were staying, pulled a book down and opened it up and showed an illustration of Solomon's temple that used to be in Jerusalem. Uh, you know, an artist's depiction of it. it. says, the temple I'm talking about is this one here. At which point the Palestinian negotiator said, obvious Jewish propaganda. He said, no, this isn't the Bible. This is Roman history. The Romans claimed to have destroyed this temple that the Jews had. And this is long time before Muhammad ever showed up. At which point, the Palestinian was now offended. He had been proven wrong. That's when he got up, left the room, went over to talk to Yasser Arafat. Yasser Arafat said, that's it, the deal's off, we're leaving. And Yasser Arafat left, and that's when we had the second intifada. The Palestinians and the Arabs cannot accept the truth of biblical history. Islam will not accept the truth of biblical history. The world wants to ignore it. The Arab world wants to actually dispute it and claim it's just Jewish stuff. I would remind everybody, we didn't have any Jews at this point. These are all Hebrews. Abraham's a Hebrew. He's not a Jew. Um, this is Hebrew history. Uh, for those who are listening to my teaching and saying, well, I don't want to be a part of this Torah teaching stuff. It's all Jewish stuff. Let me remind you, it's not Jewish stuff. It's Hebrew stuff. When you are a descendant of, of Abraham, you are a descendant of a Hebrew, the first Hebrew. These are Hebrew teachings. Jews are simply one segment, one element within the Hebrew family. There are many other elements in the family. 
I would remind everybody that the house of Israel, the northern kingdom, the ten other tribes, they weren't called Jews. The Jews were the tribes that lived in the land of Judea and the southern part of the kingdom. The Israelites were never called Jews. They were Ephraimites. They were B'nai Ephraim. And they are scattered in the world. And you don't see them as Jews. They don't look like Jews. But God has said he will be bringing those tribes back to join with the house of Judah and they'll become one in the hand of the Lord. Israel is far greater than the average Christian understands. Israel is much greater. It's much more than just a bunch of Jews that are in it. But the world's stereotype today says there's just Jews and Gentiles in the world today. These passages of Scripture, what we're reading here, these negotiations and so forth, proves that it was the Hebrews. The biblical definition of the people that are in the world is believers and unbelievers. That's the biblical definition of people in the world today. We who are descendants of Abraham and of the Hebrew line, we are part of the remnant that will become the remnant of Israel. We are the believers in his seed. We're all the families of the earth, but we believe in Yeshua, the seed of Abraham. Therefore, we're part of the Abrahamic family. And it doesn't make any difference whether you were born Gentile of any nation, whether you were a Jew of the tribe of Judah, a house of Judah, or whether you were an Ephraimite that you were of the northern tribes. It doesn't make any difference. We all fit within the same Hebrew family. We all fit within the family of Abraham. So now, um, Abraham has secured this place where they're going to bury Sarah. And the story now shifts to what is to happen to Isaac. Isaac has now lost his mother. Abraham realizes this is a huge issue for his son. And furthermore, by the way, offering him up in sacrifice in the last chapter, God has promised through him there would be many descendants for Abraham. If there's going to be descendants, then Isaac needs to have a wife. And he knows this. And so Abraham is now about the business to, one, do what is necessary for Isaac to have a wife, and two, also to um, make sure that his son Isaac is comforted and has a companion for life since he's just lost his mother uh, from that. So he calls for his servant, Eliezer, and he essentially dispatches Eliezer to go back to the land of where Abraham and Sarah had come from, to go back to his family in Paramaran, and, and this is where we're getting ready to meet Laban, um, you know, his, um, uh, who will become the uncle uh, of um, Isaac, and uh, where Isaac will go back and serve some 20 years under the house of Laban as he builds himself up. Excuse me, I'm crossing my stories up, forgive me. Um, so that's Jacob. Isaac needs to get his wife first, so we're going to get Rebecca, and he's going to go back to Laban and get his sister of Laban. I've got so many Torah portions going through my head. Okay, so but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Um, Abraham is going to dispatch his servant. Chapter 24 is where he's going to take Eliezer, and he's going to send him forth, forcing Eliezer to make a vow to him to accomplish this deed. Chapter 24, verse 1, it says, Now Abraham was old, advanced at age, and the Lord blessed Abraham in every way. 
And Abraham said to his servant, the old of his house, who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I live. If you remember the ancient promise that came from Noah, was that the sons of Shem would rule over the Canaanites. The Canaanites would not rule over anyone. And so part of that reasoning is why Abraham is going to, I need to go get a wife for Isaac from the descendants of Shem, not the Canaanites. So that's part of the background to why he would dispatch him to go find a wife for him from there. Verse 4, but you shall go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, suppose the woman will, will not be willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land where they came from? I mean, I'm going to go talk to some woman over there and say, hey, we got a bachelor available here. Why don't you come on over and check him out? That doesn't make a lot of sense. Shouldn't I take the bachelor and go over and meet the young lady and let him win her over? I mean, that's essentially what Ellie is saying. But Abraham says, beware lest you take my son back there. He needs to keep the son in this promised land. The land that God promised to him and to his descendants, he needs to keep him here. So we've got to get a wife. We've got to get her to come from the descendants of Shem, not from the Canaanites. So they bring the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, to your descendants I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you will take a wife for my son from there. He will send his angel before you. If you recall, Abraham has had a lot of experience with the angel of the Lord. You remember he was sitting at the Oaks of Mamre and got the promise and before the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he, he knows the angel of the Lord is very special in his life. And so he says, to accomplish this, I'm certain the angel of the Lord will go before you to accomplish. Because this I believe to be God's will. God wants this to happen. This angel of the Lord, this is a very interesting concept. The, um, Judaism wrestles with this. Uh, the angel of the Lord actually means the messenger of God, the word of God. That's actually what it means. Um, and we're not talking about an archangel. We're talking about a very unique person who can speak the word of God, who can make authoritative decisions like God. We are actually looking at the manifestation of the Messiah before he came in the flesh as a man. Literally, what Abraham is saying is the Messiah will go with you. Although he's not calling him the Messiah yet, he is speaking of this one who has great authority, who knows how to lead, who knows the right decisions. He's the one who will be going with you, Eliezer. So, and if the, willing, if the woman, verse 8, but if the will, woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath, only do not take my son back. In other words, you can't force the woman to come, Eliezer. But go and represent me and represent Isaac and see if you can secure her agreement to come. If she refuses, then okay, you're free from the oath. So under those terms, Eliezer agrees 
to be dispatched on this mission. Verse 9, so the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master, set out with a variety of good things of his master's in his hand. He arose and he went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. This is the land where Abraham originated from, where his family will still be at, the descendants of Shem. Now, we have to take note here at verse 10, then the servant took 10 camels. Why didn't he round it off to 12? Why not 6 or 8? Why is the scripture explicitly giving us this number 10 for it? Well, this is one of the places, and we find this consistent elsewhere in the scripture. When the number 10 shows up, 10 camels here, 10 commandments, 10 times you've tested me in the wilderness. When we see this number shows up, it has to do with one particular theme that we have in Scripture, and that theme is having confidence in God. Eliezer knows that the angel of the Lord is going to go before him, so he's going to place his confidence in God. So how many camels should he take? Ten that's my testimony. I, that's all I'm going to need. I'll, I'll take 10 camels. He'll carry all the things I need because my confidence is in God. And so he goes forward. And the scripture records for us that's how he went, that he went with a testimony of confidence in God. Verse 12, or let me go to verse 11. And he made the camp, oh, let me back up to verse 10. <laughs> Then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master, set out from the variety of goods of his master in his hand. He arose, went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at evening time. It's, he's working with the camels. You see, the emphasis of the ten camels is very paramount here. The time when women go out to draw water. Okay, let's see. I checked into town. Where's the best way to meet girls? Oh, go to the well. Go to the well for the city. Because the women, one of the great tasks of the ancients was women carried water. You know, the, the jars on the shoulder, jars on the head. They used to make jars specifically that they could balance. And they would carry the water back. And in the evening time is when they went to draw water for the house for the next day. So the, if you wanted to meet girls in the ancient time, well, you went to the well. And in the evening time, that's when you saw all the ladies of the whole city coming with their jars to get water. So he's going to get a chance to meet very quickly a whole bunch of women. And hopefully there's going to be some single women in there that might be potential candidates to be the wife of Isaac. Verse 12, and he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. I want you to listen to the nature of the prayer. He's not praying for himself. My master has dispatched me. It's really the goals of my master we're trying to accomplish. Not my goal. Even though I took an oath to it, it's really I'm trying to serve my master. Could you cause my master to be successful? He's not asking for his personal success. I'm not gonna, he's not looking for his reward. He's really looking for what would be of benefit to his master. Verse 13, Behold, I am standing by the spring. 
and the daughters of men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl whom I say, please let down your jar so I may drink, and who answers, drink, and I will water your camels also. Again, the emphasis on the camels again. May she be the one whom thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac, and by this I shall know that thou hast shown loving kindness to my master. What an interesting prayer. I'm going to present myself before you, Lord. We're going to go through this normal, natural process that happens in the evening when the young ladies come to get water. And from this normal and natural thing, I want you to show me, God, what is the path that is before me. And I'm going to make a request for a drink from one of these young ladies. And the one that gants me a drink and then offers to go beyond that to water the camels, because I brought the camels to be part of my confidence in God, uh, that is the one you're showing to me is the one I need to be speaking with. That's the one appointed that you've selected for my master and for my master Isaac. So as you know the story, this is what takes place. Um, verse 15, and it came about before he had finished speaking. Behold, Rebekah, who was born of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. And the girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. And she went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Now, this is a very interesting description of Rebecca. I want you to listen to it again. She was very beautiful. Okay, we got that part. She's a knockout, okay? She's a virgin. Then it says, and no man had had relations with her. Isn't virgin and no man has had relations with her, aren't those the same thing? No, they are not. No, they are not. A virgin in the biblical definition means a virtuous woman, a woman of God. That's what virgin in the Bible means. A woman of God. Um, and the, the having had no relationship with a man, that's another category. So when the scripture talks about that the Messiah shall be born of a, uh, a, um, a virgin, okay, it's talking about a woman of God. And that is the really deeper meaning of that. Now, the church has tried to take that word and try to say, well, she'd had no relationship, you know, because they're using the Gentile definition of the word virgin, but the biblical definition is this. This is the biblical definition. Now, I'm not suggesting that Mary wasn't, had not had relations with a man. I'm not at all suggesting that. What I'm saying is that the proper biblical definition of women that are described in this, this, they make a distinction. The emphasis is that she's a woman of God even more than her reputation, which she had never been with another man before. That is far more significant than all of the other descriptors. She had physical beauty, but she had internal beauty. She was pure. She was a woman of God, which, you know, the two worked and radiated to, together. 
for it. This is how she presents herself. Verse 17, then the servant ran to meet her, said, please let me drink a little water from your jar. She said, drink, my Lord. And she quickly lowered her jar to her hand, gave him drink. Now, when he had, she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. So immediately he now is seeing the fulfillment of what he had laid out before um, the, the Lord in his prayer. Again, I want to step back for a moment. Do you see the detail in this story? Do you see the incredible detail? If somebody was making this story up, if somebody was trying to falsify the biblical story message and so forth, let me tell you how the average guy would have written this story. Well, Abraham sent his servant Eliezer, went off and found a wife for Isaac, and Isaac married a woman called Rebecca. And that's all it would have said. They would have gotten on to way more important things, so to speak, if you were trying to falsify the biblical record, if you were trying to make a religion out of false ancient stories. Nobody would go into this detail. Nobody would go into the how Eliezer is working to determine the will of God as he goes to do this. The reason I want to draw your specific attention to this is that each one of us, in the course of our walk with the Lord, uh, we need to ask ourselves, okay, I believe in the Lord, and the Lord's a great God, and he's king in the universe. Praise God. Ed, thank you for the redemption. Okay, but how do I walk this out now? How do I get up today and proceed to walk out my faith? Look at the example of Eliezer. What is he doing? What is his task for the day? He's dialoguing with the Lord along the way of his tasks. He's walking with the Lord. He's letting the angel of the Lord be with him on the journey of his life. He's relying on the angel of the Lord to show him the proper path, the, 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 the thing that he should accomplish. A man of God, a man who knows the Lord, walks daily with the Lord. So it's not just the confession of my mouth, oh, I believe in the Lord, and thank you, God, for your salvation, and thank you for forgiving me of my sins, and so forth. No, it's the next day you get up and you say, good morning, Lord. What do we have planned today? Let it, oh, I'm going to this place. You walk with the Lord along the way. You speak with him in the morning. You speak with him in the afternoon. You sit down, you talk with people about the Lord. The Lord is part of your life. And for those that is part of their life, we share the fellowship with one another. How good the Lord has been to me. He's taking care. Well, I was a little sick there, but the Lord took care of me. You know, and, and, and you walk out every day in your relationship. You want to know why we have all this detail here? You're getting to see an example of the servant of Abraham, his servant Eliezer, how he walks with the Lord like Abraham. And by the way, we're not even picking on one of the great heroes of the faith. We're not talking about Abraham. We're talking about the guy that works for Abraham. We're talking about one of his servants. We're talking about people like us. Regular, everyday people. And you see his faith. You see how he walks it out. How the Lord is right there with him every step of the way. Even before he finished saying the words, here it happens. One of the principles that I like to teach about the Torah, being a Torah teacher, 
is that um, I call it living Torah. Uh, each Sabbath, we turn to a portion uh, in the Torah and we learn it for that week. I call it living Torah because if you look at the Torah portion and the principles and the things that are being taught in it, that week you'll see things that are taught in that Torah portion happening in your life. And the reason that happens is because this is the living word of God and you're a living soul. And these words are to permeate into your life. These are to become your thoughts, your steps, your thinking, your decisions. And God has written the word of God that is alive and powerful, that is able to work in between your spirit and your soul and knows the difference, and into your body between the joints and the marrow, which are, by the way, two soft, spongy little things at the end of your bones. And he can still tell the difference between the two. And so that you and I can learn to discern the things of God. Just as Eliezer was able to walk and discern which woman is the one. You and I are to walk with the Lord to where that we acquire the skill of discerning the things of the Lord. One of the things that I've taken as application from this, a personal application from this, was that, you know, I meet a, a lot of uh, different people in the course of my life. Um, and one of the quick prayers I always say uh, to them as I meet this person, I'm greeting and so forth, I say, what are you doing with this person, Lord? Is there anything you want me to do with them? Is there anything you want me to speak or say to them? Because I know God is involved in my life and I know God's involved in their life. And there may be a connection, a spiritual connection. So I want to I want to get the Lord involved. I want to pay attention to what the Lord is doing here. I want to discern what his will is. And usually, sometimes, he'll say something to me that I will speak into that person's life. And all of a sudden, it flipped a switch or turned something. And believe me, I've had a multitude of people who have come back even years later and said, Monty, I don't know if you recall this conversation, but you and I met, blah, blah, blah. And you said such and such to me, and that was a turning point in my life. Now, I may or may not remember it, but I'm not shocked or surprised by it because that I see God that involved in daily decisions. I see the Lord involved in our lives at that level. I love the story of Eliezer the servant going and finding because it's, it gives you the insight into a spiritual man having a walking relationship with the living God involved with it. And you and I, we both want the angel of the Lord walking around with us. Amen? Uh, now, as being recipients of the promises, the Messiah and his redemption, we now know, of course, that it's Yeshua the Messiah, who is a, a friend of us, who's closer than a brother to us. And uh, he's our Messiah and our Savior. Amen? Well, that's the amount of time that we have for this portion for this week. Uh, join with me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this portion again. And thank you for the life of Sarah, the importance of her story and Abraham's story is in our lives. And as we look 
forward to hearing more about Isaac and his life. We thank you, Lord, for these wonderful ancient stories that explain uh, many of the profound principles of our faith. And we ask, Lord, that through this Torah teaching, you might establish within us those principles to walk forward in your name, in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.